Welcome back to the Go in the Match podcast. Today I'm joined by the Athletics' James Pierce. James was formerly a journalist at the Liverpool Echo for 14 years before making the move to the Athletic to cover all things Liverpool FC. James, thanks for giving up your time today, mate, and thanks for coming on the podcast. No problem, Mike. How are you? You okay? Well, good, mate, yeah. Okay, so I want you to take us back to your childhood and following Liverpool. Where were you born and how did your love for Liverpool Football Club begin? Yeah, I, I was born in a city called Bath in the, uh, the southwest of England. So, um, and I was born in 77. So as a, as a football mad kind of six, seven, eight-year-old in the, in the mid-80s, um, everyone in my primary school was either, was either Liverpool or Everton. Um, you know, of course, at the time, they were the, the two dominant forces in English football. And uh, yeah, we, every day we'd be over the park kicking the ball around after school and and uh, yeah, I'd say probably half of us had red shirts, half of us had blue, and um, it just it just went from there, really. Um, you know, just kind of bit. You know, I know a lot of people kind of it gets passed down from their dad and the rest of it. My, my dad was a, f- a football fan, but not like a real fervent one. He didn't really particularly have a, a team. Um, yeah. So it was, it, you know, rather than kind of him taking me to games, it was more kind of I started getting you know on his case repeatedly, desperate for. For him to take me to matches, so you know, live, living down in the southwest, we used to do quite a lot of the away games. So like Villa away and Coventry away and Southampton away, and um, yeah. yeah, the ones that weren't weren't too far off. Um, you know, I think back to the, you know those early early nineties when um, you know even I mean Liverpool did actually play in Bath once. It was that was a, I didn't think I'd ever see that you know ever that didn't think that would ever happen. But it was when. Um, Bristol Rovers were ground sharing with Bath City, and it was it was actually en route to Liverpool, winning the FA Cup in 1992. And um, so yeah, it was uh, the only the one for the only time I've ever seen Twerton Park, which is the home of Bath City, uh, packed to the rafters. I think there was about nine thousand in there that night, and um, <laughs> usually they get about five six hundred at a, a Bath City game. But um, yeah, one all draw, and then um, yeah, Liverpool ended up sneaking through in the in the replay at Anfield. So, um, yeah, it was October 1990 was when I finally convinced my dad to, to take me to Anfield for the first time. So that was like an early birthday present. I was, I think I would, well, I would have been coming up to, I was 12, kind of going on 13 at that time. And it was um, Liverpool, Chelsea. It, yeah, I think it was like that mid-October. It was a 2-0 win. Um, Rush and Steve Nicol with the goals. And yeah, it was, it was everything that I... I thought it would be in terms of, you know, just remember now this like, you know, the hairs on the back of your neck standing up when you hear the cop yeah. singing, you never walk alone. And, um, and it was, yeah, it was so different then because you used to just be able to wait around in the old maid stand car park. I remember we were there probably for an hour, hour and a half after the game and, you know, filled my boots in terms of autographs in my, in my book and pictures with players and all the rest of it. Um, even even buying a copy of the, the old Pink Echo, which you used to be able to buy outside the ground by that point, you know, an hour and a half, but maybe two hours after the game, that that, that day's match report in, um, which is, you know, the, the Pink Echo's obviously long since bit in the dust. But, um, yeah, it was just, I think probably the the, the, the funniest story from that trip to, to Anfield, was I remember on the way back, back home, it was, uh, my dad is a notoriously slow driver, so I've got to be honest, back then it was, it felt like Liverpool was at the other end of the planet compared to Bath. You know, it didn't feel like it was only 200 miles away. And um, and he bought me this scarf outside the ground and it had, you know, Liverpool 18 times 
Champions of England on it. And I remember like saying to him, oh, you know, you bought me the wrong one here. This will be, <laughs> this will be out of date in May. Um, and yeah, um, unbelievably, I, uh, you know, it, it was only only out of date a couple of months ago. And I did, I did dig it out of the loft actually, this old scarf. And uh, I did have it on on that night that um, the 30 year wait was finally ended. Wow, that's something to say, really, isn't it? So, I mean, everyone kind of has that moment, I suppose, regardless of your support. When you're going up those stairs for your first game and you see the pitch and the green pitch kind of smacks you in the face, doesn't it? And but when you were going, do you kind of remember those? Do you remember that moment? Yeah, I really do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember, like, just just the you know, I just you know, the, just that feeling of being in amongst you know, all the fans and, and feeling that buzz and the, you know, the, that, that kind of murmur of expectation before, in the build-up to the game. And yeah, you're right, you know, walk up, you know, I can vividly remember walking up the old steps in that, it was, we, we were sat in the old main stand down towards the, the cop end. And of course, back then the cop was still, was still standing as well in 1990. Um, so yeah, you know, seeing, seeing the grass for the first time and, just yeah, little just little things like that, and you know, catching a glimpse of John Barnes in the flesh, warming up, and you know, Barnes and and, and Rush were my absolute heroes as a as a kid. So um, yeah, I don't think you ever you ever forget memories like that. Yeah. So what does a, a standard match day look like for you now, being in journalism, and what do you kind of miss most about going the match as a fan? Because obviously you still go in the match as a fan, but is there anything about being in the stands as a fan that you maybe miss compared to being in journalism? Yeah, I think yeah, you definitely you definitely do miss a, a lot of things, really. I mean, it was probably I, I went to you know, I went to Liverpool University when I was uh, eighteen and to do a degree in history and you know basically just pick Liverpool because I wanted to to be close to Anfield and I wanted to be able to to be able to go every week. So that was you know and, and you know we had I had some fantastic times. I know it wasn't the most trophy laden period. It was kind of like mid nineties under Roy Evans and. Um, but yeah, with you know my mate Pete, who I live with at university, you know I do I do miss that. You know, the meeting up at the pub a few hours before the game and having a few pints and the and then yeah yeah and then it was uh, yeah that, I, you know, and even even after some wins in recent years, like I think back to you know the probably the best night I've ever had at Anfield and probably the best night most people have ever had at Anfield who were there would say the Barcelona fight back and I think. That's probably the perfect example of a game when, you know, you, you know, you, you really after 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 something like that, you, you know, the the emotion and the jubilation and the ecstasy of that, the um, you you want to just go out with your mates and 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 talk about it and savor it. You know, you don't really want to go back home and and uh, yeah. bury your head in a laptop for two three hours. So um, no, I mean it's a very what I do, I absolutely love and. Um, you know, very, very privileged and honoured to do what I do. But yeah, you do, it does, it does change the match day experience an awful lot because um, sometimes you can feel quite torn. But I think back to, you know, probably the, the fight back against uh, Borussia Dortmund en route to the Europa League final in 2016. And, mm-hmm. you know, obviously Lovren famously scored in the last minute and things like that are quite odd, really, when you're a, a fan and a journalist and, uh, you know, you're, because you've got the, the 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 joy, the fan in you is absolutely buzzing with the last minute winner. Yet, from a professional viewpoint, you're pulling your hair out because you're you're pretty much having to delete five six hundred words and completely <laughs> start again on, um, especially on a night game when you know when I was at the Echo, you had very little time between the game finishing and 
the the deadline for the paper so um yeah th things like that can be uh, quite testing yeah i remember that door again i went to that one and i mean i was in, i was in concert square that night at the bar for about three hours just contemplating what actually happened so <laughs> we were all a bit delirious on that one weren't we um so i wanted to kind of understand how you got into journalism and is that something that you've always wanted to do yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got, yeah, I've got to be honest. From probably the age of about thirteen, fourteen, it was like most kids growing up obsessed with football. I wanted to, I wanted to be a, I wanted to be a professional. But I think uh, I remember crying my eyes out when I got a, a rejection letter after going for a trial at Southampton, and that was uh, that, that was that was probably as close as as I ever got. So, um, so yeah, I think you know I always loved English at school. I always you know. I suppose it's quite sad in a way, but I've still got scrapbooks with all the games. My dad, you know, ticket stubs and stuff from the games my dad used to take me to. And I'd always write a little match report in this, in the scrapbook of the game we'd been to. And, yeah. um, and then, yeah. And I think even when we were at senior school, it was one of those ones where they say, right, you've got to pick somewhere to go and do some work experience. And I remember going to the newspaper, the, the Bath Chronicle in my home city and doing some work there. And just, I just absolutely love the, the buzz and the feel of being in a newsroom and you know, things have changed an awful lot in journalism over the last 20 years. But um, yeah, back then when, you know, you used to be able to, you know, you'd be working on a story and then, you know, half an hour later, you'd hear the, the presses downstairs whirring into action and, and within, you know, within 45 minutes, a copy of that paper is, is, is slapped on your desk. And yeah, it was, I, I just being around that environment, I was like, this, this is amazing. This is what I want to do. Yeah. Um, and then, so yeah, just, you know, to be honest, I just volunteered for anything, anything they needed doing um, on like a freelance basis. I do, you know, real, you know, talking like real eighth, ninth, 10th tier of English football games in front of 50, 60 people go and go and cover it and do a couple of hundred words for them and go and interview a gymnast or a local hockey player or a swimmer. Um, just anything really to get experience and then um, I worked on the student paper when I was at Liverpool University for three years um, and then went off backpacking around Australia for six months after uni and then uh, the paper in Bath had said to me look we, we don't have any jobs going at the moment but when one does come up it's you then I was actually in Australia and they said you know the job's yours but you're gonna have to come back in three weeks so I cut short that trip and and it started off so that was that was in kind of uh, May 2000. Fantastic so obviously when you were going to Anfield and you started doing the journalism was it quite difficult to kind of put your professional hat on and kind of take yourself out of that that fan side of things or was that something that came very naturally to you because I can imagine when you're doing the journalism obviously when you're writing down everything's got to be in shorthand but then maybe the fan and you just maybe wants to just sit there and watch the game and obviously get up singing and that was that quite hard at first or <laughs> um yeah I think it was yeah something you get to you got to grips with I mean to be honest when it was quite a gradual thing for me because even when I joined because I worked in Bath for five years and then got the job in the Echo in June of 2005 so it was like the month after Istanbul and yeah. um even when I joined the Echo I was still doing I tended to you know because obviously it was so competitive everyone wanted to write about football and Liverpool in particular that um you know, I, I tended to do the jobs that no one else wanted to do. Um, you know, a lot of the, the smaller sports. So um, it was quite rare in the first few years at the Echo to even be able to get my hands on a press pass, to be able to go to Anfield. And, yeah. you know, initially you might just get trusted with doing, you know, Benitez would have been manager then. And 
sometimes you'd be trusted with typing up the Benitez quotes and but I think you soon kind of got to grips with you know the the etiquette of press boxes I think yeah. I've still broken the etiquette of press boxes many times over the years when when things have got dramatic but um but no I think I've always I've always thought and hoped that that being a fan is much more of a help than a hindrance because um yeah you do need to detach yourself a little bit from the emotion of it but also not too much because I think I think it certainly helps if you being a fan I think hopefully it means that you're you're tapped into what other fans are thinking what they you know the issues and the topics that they really care yeah. passionately about maybe the concerns they've got about the team and all the rest of it so um yeah I've, I've always thought that being a being a fan was was you know it was more of a help really hopefully in terms of generating content that that people are interested in yeah naturally knowing the information so I mean I want to kind of touch on some topics now to do with the club and I've touched on the previous episodes that I've done with other fans of different clubs how much of a problem uh touting of tickets is in football now for match days and everything so I wanted to get your take if you've got one on on it all and are you aware of the club are aware of it themselves and are they looking at putting measures in place in the future to kind of stomp out town because obviously it's such a massive issue for, for all football for all football clubs at the moment yeah oh it is a it is a huge issue and yeah Liverpool have taken taken steps in recent years and I know that they're they're very very passionate about taking further steps I think um you know they they know this is a you know a, a, a big big issue that you know, you've got you've got touts with you know dozens and dozens of of members' cards and um, that you know that are you know horrendously ripping people off left, right, and centre. And I've you know, I've spoken to fans, especially you know people that have come from overseas and are, yeah. are that desperate to lay their hands on tickets that they've paid eye-watering sums of money for tickets that that just didn't exist um, or, or, or a fakes and they get turned away at the, at the turnstiles. So, um, so no, it's Liverpool are more than aware of that. You know, I think they have, you know, I know Peter Moore, who's obviously recently left as CEO. It was, it was one of his kind of big topics he wanted to address. You know, they employ private investigators to try and bring, bring people to account for, for the things that you know, for for, for the behaviour of, of of touts and um, and I think we'll see a lot more of that. I think you know, with with COVID, um, you know, of course, going forward, you can have a situation where you know, because of the the health situation, when fans are allowed back into games, initially, you know, everyone, you know, you're going to have to prove that you are the person whose name is on the ticket, and um, you know, and and they are they're not going to be transferable. Um, you know, I know Liverpool have, have addressed the, the, the issues with season tickets because I think, you know, I, I'm sure I'm sure we all know so many people, season ticket holders who use season tickets or have used season tickets that aren't in the, in their name because, you know, th- you know, they just tend to get passed. You no, know, no one really ever gives a season ticket back, do they? They just they, they just pass it on or they sell it on. Or um, so I know Liverpool now have had like you know they've had an amnesty in terms of you know, trying to ensure that they know exactly who's in the ground and I think I think that will just that will just grow and grow going forward to the point where you know everyone does have to prove that they are who it who it says on the ticket because um yeah it's you know it's it's you know there is a genuine issue there in terms of supply and demand of course which 
will be assisted slightly when Liverpool do get round to to rebuilding the Anfield Road end. Um, you know, they're, they're still committed, the owners, to to getting cracking on that at some point in 2021. But um, but yeah, it, touting is a is a huge issue, and yeah, Liverpool do take it seriously. Yeah, I suppose it's re- quite reassuring for fans to know that. Obviously, they are aware of it, but they also want to do something about it as well. So, no, that's really good. Um, I wanted to ask you about Trent. So, obviously, he's really living every kid's dream as a Liverpool fan. And I'm absolutely made up, you know, given how humble he is at such a young age and what he's already achieved in the game. Um, I wanted to get your opinion on whether you see traits of Gerard and Trent. Because, obviously, you do the interviews with him. You'll see him, what he's like uh, in and around the ground and everything. Um, when he inevitably, in my opinion, takes over as captain, do you see him becoming one of the all-time great captains of the club? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I think you know, it's, it's unbelievable to think that Trent is still only 21 years of age, which you know, is scary when you think, you know, at the age of 21, you know, there's a lot, a lot of very talented kids still playing under-23s football in the, uh, in the academy system who are who were dreaming of trying to make the leap into the senior setup at whatever club they're at. And when you think Trent is already a, a, you know, a Champions League winner, a Premier League winner, um, you know, and it's you know, clearly, you know, not only England's best right back, but for me, the most complete right back in, in world football. Um, it is, you know, it is so exciting to think what he could go on to achieve. And, um, you know, I've, been very lucky to sit down with him and do a number of interviews over the years. And I, you know, I always remember the first one I did with him. He could only have been probably, he couldn't have been either 17 or 18 at the time. And I was just absolutely blown away by just, you know, the the, the confidence with which he spoke and how assured he was. And in fact, yeah. in that interview, he talked about wanting to captain Liverpool one day. You know, this is my club. I don't want to ever go anywhere else. I want to captain, you know, mm-hmm. I believe I will captain this club. And it, you know, it, and, it, and it, you thought to yourself, what, you know, with some people, if some people had said that, you'd say it was arrogance, but it wasn't. It was just, it was just belief and confidence, and yeah. Um, and yeah, do you know what? I and I, the only player I've ever had close dealings with, who he, you know, he, who, yeah, there, there definitely is a similarity with Steven Gerrard. Yeah. In terms of, um, not just talent, but just the personality. Um, you know, the aura, and you know, I know Trent's aura is obviously still growing. You know, it's not. He's, he's, he's not, you know, of course, he's, he's got a long way to go in terms of reaching his absolute peak in the game. But when you look at what he's achieved already, um, yeah, it's, it, I just can't wait to watch, watch what happens next. And there's no doubt he's destined to captain this football club and, um, and hopefully spend, you know, you'd, you'd love to think that he, he would be a one club man and, and, and finish his career as a, you know, he, I, I, there's no reason why I don't see why he won't when he when he when he calls it a day in what probably 12, 13, 14 years time. You know, he, he'll be regarded up there with you know. It could well be the, the debate is not just over. Is it Kenny Dalglish or Steven Gerrard? It could be is it Trent Alexander Arnold because um, you know he he's got the lot. You know, he is he's such a gifted footballer. Um, you know, and he lives his life right as well. I think that's such an important thing. I know when when I used to go to the academy around the time when he was just breaking through, you'd speak to the coaching staff at Kirby and you'd speak to Alex Inglethorpe and um, and they'd say, you know, one of the big, big pluses with Trent, which gives him a fantastic chance of making it, 
is that he's surrounded by such good people. Um, you know, he comes from a great family that have always kept his feet on the floor. Um, you know, his, his, his brother is his, his representative. His, you know, his, his mum has been an absolute inspiration for him, Diane. Um, and, you know, and where, where sometimes, you know, that can be a hindrance for kids not being surrounded by good people. They get, you know, they get you know, full of their own importance or they get some bad advice. Um, yeah. He has been guided expertly. Um, and uh, that, that that as well but bodes really well going forward in terms of what he might kick on and and and, uh, and and the heights he might still hit for Liverpool. Yeah, that's it. I mean, you can play on the pitch and get a couple of assists and a couple of goals, but if you're not as good as as a man off the pitch and as a person, which is like you know, he's shadowing Gerard and that sort of respect for me. So, you know, all great things from gonna come from him. Um, a bit of a random question that I wanted to throw in here, something that I'm really interested in getting your thoughts on. So the deal that the club have got with Nike now, obviously it takes the club to a different level in terms of revenue and offers the club an even wider range of distribution. But do you feel that things such as, you know, the vapor kit being more expensive than the stadium kit, do you think that divides the fan base in terms of, you know, families that, that can afford to pay for the more expensive one to those that can? Yeah, I yeah, I must admit, I'm not a massive fan of the the, the two different different shirts, and you know, I, I think the, the the price is eye watering, isn't it? When you yeah. when you look at um, yeah, and especially with the fact that you know it doesn't feel like it was that long ago when when kits only got changed every every couple of years, and of course you know that went out the window, and now you're gonna have three kits, and you probably got a situation where parents up down the land are gonna you know going to have a, a clamour for three different kits a, a year from now. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I certainly sympathise with that. And I don't, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit crazy in my, in my book, having two different shirts um, that you can, that you can buy, especially the, the, the top back that that, the, um, you know, the, the more expensive one is. I think, I think in, in general, the, the night deal is, is very good news for Liverpool, of course, Financially, I think um, you know, it was a very different type of deal to the New Balance one, where um, you know Liverpool have taken a lower a lower fee guaranteed from Nike, which I think raised a lot of eyebrows initially because you know people were thinking you know oh they're going to get 70, 80 million, and then it, you know I was down in London for the court case when New Balance were fighting to retain the contract last last autumn and. Um, you know, and people go, hang on a minute. You know, why is there only thirty million a year guaranteed with this five-year deal with Nike? Um, but you know, when you look at the actual small details, the fact that they're guaranteed twenty percent of all royalties, I think, I think the only thing that includes footwear, but everything else, um, you know, that that is the attraction for Liverpool that they, as they continue to grow and get big, bigger commercially, the value of that contract with Nike will grow and grow with with it over the next five years so and with all the various bonuses you know that are locked into it um you know i've spoken to various people who say it could be anything between 60 and 80 million a year depending on you know just how extensive the the sales are so um yeah i think it's a mark of how far the clubs come the fact that they had so many of the elite sports companies almost fighting over them really even you know uh, falling over themselves to try and win the contract because it wasn't doesn't certainly seem like that long ago that um, Adidas walked away, 
saying that um, just didn't think that Liverpool provided decent value for money, and I don't, I don't think anyone would say that these days. So going forward now, what are you most excited about for the future of the club? Obviously, we've been recently very successful on the clock, but is there something that stands out for you you're most excited about? Yeah, I mean, well, in terms of this coming season, I'm I'm excited about seeing how how Liverpool handle the shift in the dynamic from being, you know, being the the challengers to being the champions, and from you know being the ones now with the target on their backs. And how do they how do they handle that? Because you know, defending a title is is very very difficult. You know, obviously City did it relatively recently, but I think you've probably got to go back 15 years or so to Man United for the last time anyone else had done it. Um, so I want to. I'm interested to see in that. I'm seeing. I want to see as well the how Klopp kind of incorporates a lot of the really exciting young talent that's coming through. Um, you know, of course, there's always a, a clamour for expensive new signings, but I know you know Klopp has got huge hopes for people like Nico Williams and Curtis Jones and and Harvey Elliott, and we've seen you know Billy Cometio, a young French defender, go come from nowhere really to catapult himself into into Klopp's plans this summer. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to that. And I think, you know, probably longer term, because because we're committed till 2024, I'm, I'm really intrigued to see how he goes about, you know, almost created a, a second great Liverpool team because, you know, he's, he's assembled, you know, one absolutely outstanding team that deserves to be ranked up there with certainly the best Liverpool team I've ever seen. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, when you look at it, you know, by 2024, you, you're going to have a situation where the front three uh, will be, what, 33? You're going to have, you know, Jordan Henderson will be, what, 34? Um, you know, Virgil van Dijk will be, you know, in the, towards the twilight years as as well. And, you know, that that's going to be really interesting how he deals with that. You know, how, you know, you, you, you don't want to, you wouldn't want to change too much at the, around the same time. So, you know, slowly phasing out players who have done so much for you, that, 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 that's, a, that's a real challenge. And it's one that Klopp's never really had to do before because when you think of the success he had at Dortmund, they continually had to evolve. But that was, that was mainly because, you know, he kept having his best players cherry-picked away from him. Yeah. Um, so, it's, you know, I think it's testament to what Klopp has done at Liverpool that, you know, yeah, there's, I think you know the days of worrying every summer that Liverpool are going to lose one of their absolute world-class elite talents have, have gone, haven't they? You know, since you know, Coutinho was obviously the last one, but since then, with the success Liverpool have had, it's um, you know he, he's made Liverpool a final destination for for top players rather than just a, a stepping stone to to one of the Spanish giants. Because you know, for me. You know, if you go to Real Madrid or you go to Barcelona from Liverpool at the moment, it's a step down because you know, you know it's, when you when you look at the the silverware that Liverpool have amassed in the last fifteen months. So um, so yeah, so there's that that's going to be interesting for me that how he how he handles how he handles that because um, yeah, he's got you know it's, he's he's got the opportunity. I, that's, is more than capable of, of defending the title this season. Um, but certainly you think kind of beyond that, then, you know, he will need to Im- start embarking on that challenge of, of freshening things up a bit. Yeah. So, I mean, following on from Klopp there, I wanted to get your thoughts on his successor when his contract finishes. 
So there's lots of talk of Gerard and Nangelsman, to name a few. Um, having listened to Carragher's podcast last year on the greatest games of Gerard, they talk about how they know the club won't just give him the job because he was a legend of the club and how he knows he may need another experience uh, after, after Rangers to give him that challenge to be in pole position for the Liverpool job. Do you feel as if the club are already making plans to identify Klopp's successor or is that something they're not really looking at and it's not in the pipeline at the moment? No, I, I still think it's too early um, for Liverpool to, to really start putting a succession plan in place. I, I think we're probably at least two years away from that being a, a serious discussion yeah. you know, in, in, the, in the boardroom and, and in the FSG offices in Boston. Because I just think, I think football can, things can change so fast in football. And, you know, you think, you know Nagelsmann is, you know, he, he's you know, come from nowhere in the space of a few years, really, in terms of how much he's enhanced his reputation. And, and rightly so, because he's done, a, you know, he's done a, a fantastic job and is quite rightly highly rated. But um, we just, I, I just think it's, it's too early to say. I think, you know, I'd, I'd have to admit, I, I love the idea of Steven Gerrard taking over from Klopp in, in 2024. But, you know, even that, you know, he, he still has to, has to kind of, you know, pr- prove that, prove himself in the time between now and then. And, you know, he's got a job on his hands at Rangers. I think he's done a, a really, really good job though there so far in terms of closing the gap to Celtic. Um, but, you know, he, he, he will know better than anyone that, you know, it, despite, the tough times that Rangers have had, the expectation levels are still still huge. He's expected to go and win trophies there yeah. this season. Um, so you know, will will, will the you know, will Rangers prepare Stephen Gerrard for Liverpool? You know, maybe if he you know if he does enjoy real success in the coming years, or he might need to go somewhere else and have another job in the team. But um, another interesting one for me would be someone like Pep Linders, who. Um, yeah. is you know massively respected as a coach, um, has played a, a huge part in the success that, that Klopp has overseen at Anfield, um, you know, really well respected by all the, the players and the staff. You know, of course, he had a very brief stint on, you know, as a manager on his own over in Holland before coming back to Liverpool. Um, so you know, I wouldn't completely rule someone like him out the running in terms of, you know, of course, that would be a promotion from within, but um, yeah, I just think at the moment it's probably probably a bit too soon to say. But um, yeah, yeah, I think I think I think the one thing I want the one thing I can I think we can be pretty sure of is Klopp won't be going anywhere between now and the summer of 2024. I think um, you know he's he's that that commitment from him. I know you know in probably in modern football we've become used to contracts not really being worth the paper they're written on. But um, you know Jurgen Klopp is a man of his word, and he said that he is committed till the summer of 2024. And, you know, I've got absolutely no reason to, to doubt that is the case. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think I'd be really surprised if he went on beyond that. I know he, he talked recently about how he'd promised his, his wife that he'd, he'd have a kind of a year-long sabbatical at the end of his time at Liverpool. And that doesn't surprise me because I think he's a man that, you know, he lives the job 24-7, you know, he's, he's so passionate and so emotional about the work he does that, you know, it, it must take a huge amount out of him. So, um, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd be amazed if Jurgen Klopp managed another club side. I think, you know, to me, it almost looks mapped out that, you know, another four years at Liverpool, maybe a bit of time off. And then, you know, I, I think the German national job is, um, is certainly one that, you know, I think would, um, 
kind of lure him back into the, the dugout again at some point. Yeah, I think if he goes ahead and does that, he goes down as one of the all-time great managers ever, doesn't he? So, um, finally, the podcast is centered around going the match. So, with every podcast we're doing, I want to end by asking what are your top three favorite matches you've been to. So it doesn't have to be based on the ninety minutes itself, but it could be something that happened during the day or for whatever reason. I know you'll definitely have a few there. So, yeah, oh, do you know what? It's it's difficult to to narrow it down, isn't it? Because it's you know been you know it's been with, with uh, you know, so many amazing nights and occasions to pick from as as you know both as a, since I've been a, a journalist following the. The club around. I think um, you know. I'd, I'd probably pick. Uh, I wasn't lucky enough to be in Istanbul. Um, much, you know, one of one of the ones that you just kick yourself. You know, I, re- I really wish, obviously, I'd I'd been there. But it was, you know, it was very close to when I was moving up to Liverpool to take the job at the Echo, and um, just had too much going on at the time. But I, I was in out and out. Um, I was in Dortmund for the UEFA Cup final against Alaves in 2001, and um, you know, I think probably because of what happened in Istanbul four years later, it kind of, that UEFA Cup final almost gets overlooked a little bit in terms of just what an incredible game it was. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think it was just everything about that day makes that in my top three because, um, you know, travelling as a fan, we, I think we only had three tickets between five of us in our group and we ended up getting a couple um, outside the ground and um, I ended up actually sitting, you know, completely randomly and my ticket was in the row in front of the the kind of the non-playing Liverpool players and staff who were there. So I'd like kind of Jamie Redknapp and Yari Lippmann and sat behind me. Um, <laughs> and, and Ronnie Moran, I remember, was there and you know, I had a big hug with Ronnie Moran when um, when that golden goal went in, when obviously Gary McAllister whipped in that free kick and the, brushed off the defender's head and flew into the corner. Um, so yeah, you know, a crazy major European final to win one like that, five so yeah, Alaves would have to be in there, and um, I mean, obviously you've got the, you know, the semi-finals against Chelsea, the Champions League, you know, the thrashing of Real Madrid. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the best night I've ever had at Anfield would have to be that Barcelona game I mentioned earlier. I think that would you've got to find room for that in the in the, in the top three, just just because you know, and I, I class myself as quite an optimistic person in general and quite optimistic as a fan and try and look on the bright side but I got to admit put up that night in Stanley Park and, yeah. and walked across to the ground I I didn't think Liverpool had a prayer I just not not because I didn't think Liverpool couldn't score you know three or four goals but I just thought they wouldn't keep a clean sheet against you know the firepower of you know Suarez and, and Messi and all the rest of them so um yeah, that was, and I think, yeah, obviously we talked earlier on, didn't we, about the, the challenge of combining life as a fan and a journalist. Yeah, that was that was a tough one because I must, you know, I was I was just pretty much shell-shocked at the end of that game because you were just thinking, what have we just witnessed here? And Incredible. suddenly you realise you've only got, you've only got half an hour after the final whistle to try and turn it into a, a thousand words, which um, when you're struggling to make sense of it in your head, it's... Uh, yeah. It's it's not that's not particularly straightforward. So um so yeah, Alaves, Barcelona, and then um I suppose the one obvious one would be of you know clearly Madrid seeing Liverpool win the Champions League. But I think I'll actually go for for one from last season, which was beating Man United at home. Um and and just one you know one moment in particular that 
just for me was the absolute highlight and pinnacle of the of the of the Premier League title winning season was um, when Allison, uh, you know, got got rid of that ball and and fed Mo Salah and he ran from the halfway line and scored against United in front of the cop and and I I just remember the outpouring of emotion because it was you know Liverpool was so far ahead in the title race yet. You know, nobody nobody wanted to tempt fate. Nobody wanted to talk about winning the league because of you know what happened the year before with losing the advantage and getting pit by a single point, and of course what happened in thirteen fourteen with the slip and um and I just loved the fact that was like it was like someone had like re- released a kind of a pressure valve and and it was like you know everyone just decided right you know sod it you know, this is the moment when we are going to tell the world that we are going to win the league this season and we're not going to keep quiet about it anymore. And, uh, you know, that booming rendition and now you're going to believe us by the cop. Um, yeah, I don't think anyone was in any, any doubt at that stage. So, uh, yeah, I think I'd have to I'd have to find room for that one in my top three as well. Fantastic. So I don't think there's any better way to finish the podcast and talking about beating United to go on and win the league. So, James, <laughs> a massive thank you for, for coming on and giving up your time tonight. I really appreciate the opportunity, mate. Sorted. No problem, Mike. Good chatting to you. If you haven't already, please subscribe, follow and share. And of course, leave a five-star rating.